already. Um, this week is definitely, it feels like it went by a bit quick. I don't know if it feels like that for everyone, but uh, it definitely does seem like it went by quick. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know some of you throughout the week and look forward to seeing what future conversations might look like and being able to stay in some sort of contact and connection as, as time goes on. So we're still in the theme of how to make disciples, and today I want to look specifically at the gospel of the kingdom and how do we think about ways to articulate that, um, especially as we are thinking in the context of evangelism and discipleship and how do we talk to people about Christ, um, where do we start, and what does that look like. So I hope that we can uh, have at least uh, some form, uh, some picture of that uh, by the end of today. I want to try, I will do my best. Um, a lot of people have said they, they have questions and want an opportunity to ask a few questions. So I, I can't make any promises, but I will do my best to, to leave some time at the end of my session um, for a, a question and response time. So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Sometimes I can get a little bit long-winded. All right, so let's just do a quick review. Um, I'm just reviewing basically the, the titles uh, of each message that we've looked at. The very first lesson we looked at was the missing link. And I talked about some of my experience back in 2011, the first time I ever stepped in Uganda. And at that point in time, in my very limited experience, uh, it seemed like the link in the chain that was missing was this concept of discipleship and teaching them to obey. We're getting the go part, but where is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you? The next lesson, the second day, we looked at vocation through salvation, that salvation is meant to produce something within us for the good of others, for the rest of the, for the, rest of the world, that we are being put right to be able to also put the world right or make the world right around us, that wherever we happen to be planted, think about, I like in the parable of the sower in Matthew's account, it talks about that the seed is the word of the kingdom, right? And so I like to think about that seed being planted within us, and then we also are seeds being planted, and so wherever we happen to live or be, and, and get planted that uh, an expression of God's kingdom should be growing up in and around us individually and also collectively as a church community. Um, <clears throat> then uh, the next lesson, day three, we looked at the Jesus road to salvation, right? Looking at the things that Jesus, when he begins his ministry, uh, how he calls people to repentance and righteousness. And we went down this, this long list of things that Jesus calls people as he confronts them and some respond and are excited and others walk away sorrowful right and then we also looked at citizenship what does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of God how do we maintain our salvation how do we abide in Christ and that's that John 15 passage and then yesterday we just looked at some practical steps um, tried to line out some principles for evangelism and um, making disciples, and we brought some definitions to our terms, right? Gospel is not synonymous with salvation. It's something that does flow. It's a result of it, but they are not one and the same. Um, and also evangelism and discipleship are very closely related, but they are also different things And that our goal of evangelism is not to get people to go to church, but rather to make disciples. So 
I want to spend just, there's uh, something I was thinking about last night as I was thinking about yesterday's lesson and then praying and thinking, okay, what do I, what, what note do we want to end on for today? And I thought there was something that I wanted to, at least, a, a framework that I at least wanted to lay out that I, I think might be helpful. It's still very much in the draft form, so uh, give it, uh, look at it with some, some grace, but I'll at least give it to you. It's something we were working on and developing this summer and while, during my time in Uganda um, these last two months. And, and it's a way of just thinking about, once again, developing a strategy. Um, there's an acronym that, that I like to use. Um, in Kampala, we call it CERT. It's Strategic, Intentional, Relational, Transformational. So strategy, you know, it's important that we have a strategy in place. If, if uh, I'm not a sports person, but, you know, if you have two teams and one has a strategy and the other one doesn't, they're just going to rely purely on talent. Um, talent's going to get them somewhere, but usually the team that has a strategy is going to be in it for the long haul and ultimately is, are going to win out, right? And so uh, as we think about our Christian journey and our faith walk and wanting to be able to be effective disciple makers, well, it takes, we need to have a strategy. We need to, it's things we need to be talking about and developing. Hey, how are we going to go about doing this? Um, and we can't just stop at that step. The next step is being intentional. Now, intentional and strategy, they could seem very closely related, but intentional is actually implementing the strategy. So we have the plan. Well, now we actually have to be intentional about executing that plan, right? And intentional, those are things like we've talked about, making the most of every opportunity that's in front of you, whether that's friends, neighbors, co-workers, if you're uh, still in school, people that you go to school with. I mean, there's endless opportunities day in and day out. Um, <clears throat> the next is relational. That once again, I, I think I mentioned that yesterday, one of the principles of disciple making is the best way that I have seen be the most effective is in the context of relationships. Um, so develop a relationship. Listen to people's story. Allow them the opportunity. Sometimes we get, maybe it could just be out of excitement. It could be out of having maybe some nerves or something. It's like we always got to fill in, uh, fill the, we don't want it, there to be any quietness. And so we fill things in and we don't ever sometimes just stop and say, you know what, I'm just going to listen to them and allow them to talk. And when you do that, sometimes it's just, Eventually, you, you can't even get them to stop talking, and, uh, which is a good thing because they're opening up to you. And then you, from that point, you can start to know what areas you might need to start helping to pray for them in their life. Um, so we said the first S was strategic. The I is intentional. The R is relational. And then the T is actually the result, transformational. Like that's the goal. How do we assess if what we're doing is effective or when we might need to abandon ship? Well, do we see transformation happening? Do we see people starting at point A and moving to point B and C and D? We're not, we don't need them you know, in two days or in 30 minutes or in a week. We don't need them to get all the way to the finish line. But are we seeing progress and are we seeing changes take place in their life? And so um, that's the part of that challenge, I think, for us as disciple makers is we need to help chart that path forward for them. And so this uh, is what we're calling a discipleship funnel. So if we think about 
that strategic, um, the strategic, intentional, relational, transformational, uh, this discipleship funnel, you know, we have all of the problems in the world, addiction, um, dysfunction, you know, whether that be in family and relationships and friendships, uh, abuse, um, what are, just start naming some, what are all the various vices and problems out in the world? Greed. Greed. Multiple marriages. Yeah, so dysfunction in, in marriage relationships. What else? Give me a couple more. Hate. Hate, yeah. Idolatry, that's a big one, right? So all of those things, we need to, to think about how to, going back to being relevant, not be the world to win the world, but how do we make the story of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, the way that Jesus addresses these things, how do we make that relevant to the person that's standing in front of us? And maybe their problems aren't necessarily some of the bigger ones. Maybe they're not a very greedy person. Maybe they're not a hateful person. Maybe their problems are just financial. Maybe their problems are they have family that are sick. Like, you know, there's, there's various categories, but we can be relevant to their need, and that's where the Holy Spirit can do work. So the first intake of the funnel is, is your point of contact. So maybe that's uh, whatever connections and relationships you already have, school, work, the list can go on. Uh, maybe you're doing a, a, a DBS, a Discovery Bible Study, and so you have one or two people that you're regularly starting to meet with. That's your point of contact. Um, whatever outreach you might be involved in or volunteer service, uh, friends, families, if you develop a fishing pond, you can, you can fill in the blank. This is just your point of contact. Uh, now, it's important to... One, this is another principle, so maybe you should put it under principles of outreach or principles of... Uh, making disciples and evangelism, is it's important to have a call to action. It's okay to have some expectations. You need to, you need to it's, it's unkind to be unclear. So you need to make sure that you clearly uh, tell people what your expectations are. Don't have any unspoken expectations. So if uh, having a call to action with somebody that you're, you're working with, um, you know, or you're studying with whatever the case may be you've met them a few times it's okay to have some calls to action for them um, next steps hey next time when we meet if you could um, you know we were studying this bible passage go ahead and read through that again and also read these next set of bible passages that way when we come together we can really dive in you know it's okay to, to set some expectations and give a call to action so as this develops with somebody the the immediate call to action is that if they're interested, we'll come and learn more, right? So if, they're, if they want to come and learn more, the next phase, if you will, in this discipleship funnel is really the exploration of Christianity. Now, this is, I'm, this is developed more so from a mindset of somebody who is a non-believer, but a lot of times people can profess to be Christians and not even really know what Jesus says or teaches and what the expectations are. So, um, so this next phase is the exploration of Christianity. This is where you're going to go a lot deeper. You're not just scratching the surface. You're going to go a lot deeper. This is where you can maybe start doing some inductive Bible studies with them. Um, you can start exploring the, the deep teachings of Jesus. I like to think about Jesus' teachings. Um, the picture that comes in my mind is an iceberg. Like it's, it's one of those things like an iceberg, you know, on the surface, you, you see this piece of ice and it's like, oh, 
just a little piece of floating ice, but you don't even know that two or three times that size underneath the water is it's so deep and so vast. And so um, you begin to explore the depth of Jesus' teachings and what those applications are for their life as they begin to respond to those things. So the call to action from that phase as they begin to grow and ask more questions and progress, the call to actions are if you're serious about this way of life, because we have to remember Jesus is a way, not a way. He is the way, right? He's not just some abstract historical person that lived and did some great things, changed some stuff, and that if we live by his principles, we can try to be successful in certain areas. He's actually the way, like it's walking on a road. He's, he's charted a path for us. So if they're serious about this way of life, then this is where they're going to begin to push into community and push into accountability. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, I'm not a big invite somebody to church person. Like I, I not that, like I said, not that it's a, uh, a bad thing or something that you can't do, but for me, inviting them to actually come to a Sunday gathering or a midweek gathering or things like that, that's much, much further down the road um, with somebody that I've been working with and studying and building that relationship with. Um, so at this point, that call to action is come to the community, start interacting with others. And um, as they push into that, this is where maybe we'll begin to funnel them into an actual existing discipleship group that's happening within the church. For us here at Followers of the Way, we call those Christiformities. Christ formation, Christoformity. The goal of the group is that we're, we're wanting to form each other into the image and character of Christ. Um, so in, that, in those groups, you're going to be charting a path for change. You know, they should, they should already be making applications and changes in their life. But now when you're inside of an accountability group, inside of a, of a, of a discipleship group, this is where it's going to get real and like, okay, what is it in your life that's keeping you from Christ? Like it's, we're getting to the nitty gritty and now the group is going to help to chart a path for someone to start talking about repentance and what are the things that they need to do to get their life right and, um, and help them to start walking in that path. The call to action from that is that they're going to start counting the cost of what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, start preparing for baptism and integration into the local church community. So the process from here, you know, if we have somebody, they're up here, and we've been able to be relevant to the problems they're facing day in and day out, and we get them, them to this point, we can't put a timeline on that. I mean, with how, I think we all know how complex human relationships and addictions and problems are. Um, for some people, it, it can be a very quick process and they can be very responsive and, and there can be uh, a rapid work of the Holy Spirit that's happening. And for other people, sometimes it's, it's a little bit longer of a road. Uh, but we just have to be willing to stick with them, right? To walk alongside of them and help keep bringing them along. Uh, and sometimes it's going to be, I'll, I'll be honest, it's... it's Many times at, when you're with people, it's maybe one, two, three steps forward, and then all of a sudden, four or five steps back. And so do we just 
wash our hands and keep going on. At some point, we might have to. We do have the concept that Jesus talks about of shaking your dust from your feet. Uh, but as much as possible, I think we need to continue to have love and care and concern and try to work with people where they're at and keep progress- helping them to progress forward. Okay, and sorry for the small handwriting. When I was writing it up here, it seemed a little bit bigger than when I stood back there. I was like, oh, that's actually quite small. Maybe I should create a slide for it. Um, so next um, for us is where we have this, what we call our spiritual assessment. Spiritual assessment should not be something that's on the, on the top end. Um, somebody should be working through, you know, exploring the, the doctrines of Christianity and the teachings and, and responding to those things. And then spiritual assessment is where we're, we're really getting down to, okay, we're, we're, that process of repentance is getting very real and, you know, change of mind that's producing a change of action. And we're aligning our belief and our practice and that person is at, should be at that point where they're saying, hey, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to go to those waters of baptism. I want to die to my old self. I want to rise up a new person. I want Jesus to be my king. And I want to, I want to walk with this community and be faithful. And it's at that point when then the next step is <laughs> pretty clear. Then we're, we're at the point. The call to action in that phase, get them in the water, right? So anyway... Like I said, this is draft, so take it for with a grain of salt as we're as but if you can find it to be a, a helpful framework for you to use as you think about how to work with people, then um, I hope it can be a blessing and something that's helpful. I spent a little bit too long on that. <laughs> so anyway. All right. Everybody turn to John chapter eight. Yesterday we talked a little bit about worldviews, and I'm not, I won't erase this if you want to come up and take a picture afterwards, you're, you're welcome to. <laughs> Yesterday we had Laban put on a, a pair of glasses for us, and the, the color that he saw was different than the color that the rest of the room saw, right, when he had those lenses on. So worldviews are a lens that we look at the world through, how we understand. That, that, under, that helps inform the things that we believe, and then those beliefs inform our values, and those values inform our actions, right? You remember the concentric circles? So one of the, the challenges I, I had mentioned is a lot of times when we think about doing evangelism and um, as we begin working with people, um, a lot of times we, we end up focusing on just that outer circle. And that outer circle was behavior, right? So behavior modification, like, okay, if we can get some change. And we should, I mean, obviously, if, if somebody's changing inside, it is going to come to the outside. There is going to be change. A change of mind produces a change of action. But you can also get a change of action that, that uh, is a result of no change of mind, right? People can be pressured into things because they want to fit in or they just want to look the part or they don't want the, they don't want the judgment or whatever the case may be. So let me just let me look the part and let me do what I need to do so that everybody thinks I'm something. It's, it's this concept of putting on a mask, right? And what we want is true repentance. We want a, tr- a true change of mind that pr- produces a change of action. And that's much, much harder. It's a much longer, a much harder, a much rougher road to walk with somebody to get to that point. And so I want to look at an example to highlight <clears throat> this a little bit. 
So turn to John chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something to which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. I don't know about you guys, but like I've always wondered, like, what did he, <laughs> what was he drawing in the sand? What was he writing? What was he, you know, what was it? Was he just, was he just making it seem like he wasn't hearing and, and just kind of like in his own little world? Or like, was he actually writing something? Like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. If any of you guys have any ideas, not right now, at some point, come up to me and let me know. Okay, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, <laughs> so it seems like to some degree he's, he's ignoring them, uh, or at least from their perception, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone. And when the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are, the, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is such a powerful story. So picture the scene. And, and I, I, I would probably, myself, I probably would be similar to like the scribes and the Pharisees there. Like, hey, like, this, is, this is black and white. Like, we don't even have to guess at this person's sin. Like, this is, they, they were caught in the very act. And it's pretty clear when somebody's sinning, what we need to do. We need to take care of it. We got to address it, right? So I, I can find within myself, like it's, it, in a lot of ways, it makes sense what the Pharisees are, are coming to Jesus and asking. But Jesus, being the brilliant genius that he is, knows that the only thing they're concerned about is her behavior. Like, I mean, they, they wanted to test him. They wanted to prove a point. Did they have any real care and concern, or at least from what we can, what indicates, do you think they had any real care and concern for this woman and her situation? They just wanted to be able to use her to make a statement, right? Her behavior is off. It's not fitting. And so they're just concerned in that outer circle. I'm sure there's probably many of us in this room that can think about times that we've either seen that or maybe been a part of that, whether that be from church leadership or ourselves or friends or family or whatever the case may be. But Jesus stands up, woman, where's your accusers? There are none. And Jesus doesn't condemn her. 
He doesn't. I mean, she's done wrong, right? I mean, she's she she's done wrong. But in that moment, once again, Jesus sees her. He sees people. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Like, how is it, like, all these people, the woman at the well, the woman here caught in the act of adultery, about to be stoned to death, and, and Jesus just calmly, he's able to, to call sin, sin. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't gloss over it and, and pretend like it wasn't there. He addresses the problem, but he's, he's able to... He, now, and that's the thing. I mean, I, we're not going to be able to, to get to that kind of level, but it's like all those concentric circles, like Jesus just penetrates the layers like they're nothing and gets right, right to the center. And I, the ability for him to connect with their story. So if you remember, that very middle circle was their story, and the outside is the worldview, right? And it's like Jesus gets past all of that and gets straight to the center of it. And, and he connects his story with their story. And that's the power and the genius of who Jesus is. The way that he can connect their story and then invite and bring them into his story. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So we need to make sure that we aren't just getting stuck in the behavior modification zone. And I, and I want to be clear, I, I've said this, I hope you're getting the point. There needs to be change. Things do need to change. If people are transforming, that you know, a, a, a caterpillar does become a butterfly and there's a noticeable change from start to finish, right? But the time in which it takes to get to that point can be a slow road sometimes. And, and because we, we, we tend to want results, we tend to want the easy wins and to, to you know, be able to say, hey, look, look, this person's changing. Those things are exciting. Um, but that's why we go for the low-hanging fruit and say, well, if we can just get them to fit the part or look the part. And, and this is across, this has, you know, this is across all kinds of different um, denominations throughout Christianity. And we need to make sure that, that we ourselves, as disciples of Jesus, are we just trying to look the part? Are we putting on masks and just trying to make sure we don't want to ruffle any feathers? We don't want to want to make sure that we're just, you know, keep a low profile. I know I have throughout various times in my in my life, and I but I don't want to be, right? Jesus calls us out of that. So not only do we want to make sure we don't stay in that range as we're working with other people, but we need to make sure that in our own hearts, in our own story, that we're not doing that as well. We need to see people for people. We need to show love and kindness and forgiveness and grace and mercy to those that we're working with. All right. So let's transition. Let's transition now to what Jesus says here. He says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. These were Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, after he's gone about and started his ministry and he begins saying the kingdom of, is at, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and 
he now makes this statement that not only has he uh, come for this very purpose, but he must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. So the king, this message of the kingdom is central to what Jesus is, is going around preaching and saying as he goes. So I want, I want to simplify this down, what the gospel is. Sometimes when we simplify things, we can oversimplify them. That's not my goal. I don't want to oversimplify, and we'll unpack it a little bit. But sometimes we can also overcomplicate things as well. And, and we, we get, and then when we overcomplicate, we get too hung up, and then it just seems so overwhelming, and it's just like, I don't know, that's someone else's gifting. Um, maybe I can just invite them and have them talk to that guy, because that would be much easier. Uh, but if we just stop and we, we simplify things a little bit and not overcomplicate it, I think we can, we can begin to recognize that the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus' kingship. That's what the gospel is. The proclamation of Jesus' kingship. It's the announcement that the king has come. That's the good news. Now, there's a lot that's bound up in that news. There's a lot in the life, the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. There is a lot that's bound up in that. But if we begin to look at the different aspects and different time frames of Jesus' life and understand that the gospel in its simplest form is the announcement that Jesus is king. And now if Jesus is king, and not just king in some like spiritual, far distant realm that I don't understand and know, so he's got a lot of great principles and I'm going to apply them to my life, but king in like the true and real sense of Jesus is a king. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. Turn over to Psalm 72 if you're, if you're using the Orthodox Study Bible in Psalm 71. Psalmist says, O God, give your judgments to the king and your righteousness to the king's son, that he may judge your people in righteousness and poor with judgment. And and you're poor with judgment. Let the mountains raise up peace for your people and the hills in righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people and shall serve the sons of the poor. He shall humble the false accuser. He shall Continue as long as the sun and before the moon from generation to generation. And he shall come down like rain on the fleece, like raindrops falling on the earth. In his day, righteousness and abundance and peace shall flourish until the moon is removed. And he shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the inhabited earth. The Ethiopians shall bow down before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the islands will come bearing gifts. The kings of Arabia and Saba will bring presents. All the kings of the earth shall worship him. All the Gentiles shall serve him. For he rescued the poor from the hand of, the strong, of a strong, strong man. And the needy, for, 
from whom uh, there was no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy. He shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their souls from, from usury and injustice. And precious shall be their name in his sight. He shall live and there shall be given him from the gold of Arabia. They shall pray continually because of him. All the day long shall they bless him. He shall be a support on the earth upon the summits of the mountains. His fruit shall be exalted more than Lebanon, and they shall flourish from city like the grass of the earth. Let his name be blessed unto the ages. His name shall remain before the sun, and all the tribes of the earth shall be blessed in him. All the Gentiles shall, be, shall bless him. Blessed is the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, and blessed is, is the name of his glory forever unto ages of ages. All the earth shall be filled with his glory. Amen. Amen. That's the king. Like that's the Psalm 72, the, the king that they're waiting from, the one, the, the one who's going to come and have peace and righteousness and judge rightly and, and um, reach to the poor and bring salvation and redemption and bless the families of the earth and even the Gentiles are going to bless him. That's who Jesus is. The early church, Peter, when he even begins his sermon, he has in mind Psalm 2. We're going to read Psalm 2. It's very short. Why do the nations rage and the people meditate on vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed. Now that word anointed is the same word Christ. So that's where once again we, Christ and some of these words, they become kind of white noise. Uh, it means the anointed one, the anointed one, the one smeared with oil. And when the anointed one of Israel indicates that you are the king, right? So that's why I, I like the simple definition. What does Christ mean? God's anointed king. So the Lord, uh, they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands and cast away their yokes from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh at them. The Lord shall mock them. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and trouble them in his anger. But I was established as king by him over his holy hill of Zion, declaring the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall shepherd them with an iron staff. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Oh, now and now, O kings, Understand, be instructed, all, all you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in him with trembling. Lay hold of his instruction, lest the Lord be angry and you perish from, your righteous, from the righteous way when his fury shall be quickly kindled. Blessed are all who trust in him. That's the king that we're talking about. So it's good news because of three interlocking truths. One, the world finally has a righteous king. You know, Herod's on the throne when, when Jesus is born, and he's basically doing the same thing that Pharaoh was when Moses was born. So the world finally has a righteous king. And because of that, a new nation under King Jesus and under his leadership has been birthed. Number two, 
Israel's story has been brought to fulfillment. Think not that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not, but I came to fulfill them, right? It's like thinking about the difference between abolishing and doing away with is, is like if we had a full, or if we had a cup of water here um, and we were just to smack it on the ground, right? It's now, now it's useless. We broke the cup. The water's spilled everywhere. There's, it's done with. Whereas Jesus comes, that would have been a good analogy. Um, <laughs> Jesus comes, and and it's you know it's it's maybe partway full, and he fills it to the brim, to the brim, right? He fills it up. It's been brought to fulfillment, to completion, and now because he's brought it into its fullness, now he can express the fullness of what it means, what God's kingdom is, and now he's inviting sons and daughters to come and join him in that journey. So Israel's story, where Israel succeeded, where Israel has failed, Jesus has succeeded, right? And we've looked at that a little bit throughout, um, throughout the week. So the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus as the second Adam, the new, uh, the new Moses, uh, the greater David, and the seed of Abraham. Number three, the decay of this world has been undone through the resurrection of King Jesus. The decay of this world has been undone through the resurrection of King Jesus. When, when uh, scripture says that he came to undo the works, the works of the devil, right? God created, when we drew it up on the board here the other day, or drew, wrote it up on the board here the other day, this, God created a very good world, right? Not just a good one. He said it's very good. And sadly, humanity who is given that role to watch over, to keep, and to have dominion, and to subdue their, their job, their role was to, to steward that in some ways. And instead, when temptation came and the snake came, what did they do? They handed it over, right? And Satan became the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this present age. And so through Jesus' death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection, he's undoing the decay of this world. So the centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus as God's anointed king. This is taken from Brother Finney's book here. It says, God's intention at creation was for humanity to, be, to benevolently rule the earth. But because Adam and Eve rejected God's command, the Lord chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David to be instruments by which he would establish his own nation through covenant to bless the world and draw humanity to himself. Because Israel failed in its mandate, Jesus founded a new nation, the church, with himself as the reigning king to accomplish what Israel did not. Jesus' nation is marked by righteousness and peace. Joining this new nation involves following a radical new constitution, the covenant of King Jesus, and requires a radical break from one's previous lifestyle. 
Disciples are baptized into a new social order, the church. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, members of the new nation receive liberation from Satan, forgiveness of sins, the power of the Spirit, and eternal life. The good news of Jesus' reign culminates with his nation emerging victorious and his citizens being co-regents with him forever. All other nations and their kings will eventually be conquered and will declare that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Creation to new creation. My assumption, not maybe not for all of you, but for some of you, is you've had to rethink how you think about salvation and its role in our life and the way that... The, even even the way that we engage with and interact with the gospel and how we respond to that gospel. <clears throat> and it, it causes us to, to question and wonder that what is the present reality then? That if, if all that is true, if Jesus is the Psalm 72 promised king of righteousness and peace to come, if he's the Psalm 2 to the anointed one of God that the nations have set themselves against, then what is the present reality? Well, the present reality is that there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of light, or kingdom of heaven, as it's mentioned, depending on if you're reading Matthew, or Luke, or if you're reading one of the epistles. And the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of darkness. From our worldview, that's the reality. <clears throat> Each of these kingdoms have their own set of laws, their own set of values, and their own leadership. Jesus' laws are laid out very well on the Sermon on the Mount and, and various other places throughout the Gospels. And we can see a faithful witness of them from the time of the apostles and throughout history. Jesus said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and we're going to follow him, even if it means death. He gives us a whole new value system. And when we think about leadership we, we keep Jesus at the forefront of that. And so as a result of there being two kingdoms, followers of Jesus, we end up residing in this world, but we're supposed to be strangers and pilgrims and sojourners, foreigners in the land. And that comes with its own various different applications as we think about the ways in which we are to be not entangled with the things of this world. Um, James 4.4 4 was a very instrumental verse for me very early on. Um, I, remember, I remember sitting at the, the fire department and one day and uh, reading some, some various material, material and then stumbling across James chapter 4, verse 4, which says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with this world is enmity? With God, anyone who makes himself a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. And I'm like, hmm, that doesn't seem so great. 
Like that's a that's a really tough passage. Like like I actually can somehow be not just be an enemy of God. Like I can make myself an enemy of God, and then having to wrestle with what does it mean like to be a friend of this world? Anyone who makes himself a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, what does it mean to be a friend of this world? I mean, I can't like this and this and this. I can't like, well, that person's in the world. Can I not like them? Like, what is that? What does that actually mean? And I'm, uh, we're not going to, that's a whole, that, that's a lesson in and of itself to, to even unpack some of those things. Um, and so you can do that on your own uh, or in your, your, you know, maybe you have groups and studies that you can look at that a little bit uh, more. But John in 1 John chapter 2, we can go over there. That, this was another passage that was very challenging to me. Um, 1 John chapter 2. Uh, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's another one. It's like, wow, that is not great. Like, so I, you know, I, I grew up, you know, hearing a lot, I mean, being read the Bible, going to, to Bible studies, going to church and all these things. And, and it's like, it seemed like everything was just kind of a nice shade of gray. <laughs> and I'm just like, wait a second. Like, and even there, even if we just back up a little bit into the um, uh, first part of, of John chapter 2, where he says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem great either. That's, you know, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. Oh, Jesus is the way. Like, oh, Jesus, when he said, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like, that's not just, a, just an accepting some sort of premise about who Jesus is in my mind and making sure I live by some sort of good set of moral principles and, and, and make sure I don't get involved in too much bad stuff and, you know, you know, try to be regular about going to church or Bible study or, you know, being a, a, in general a good person. Like, no, Jesus is like, I'm the way, I'm the door. Oh, you want to follow me? Oh, what, f Master, hold on a second. My, I've got to bury my father. Totally understandable, right? Like, to me it is. Like, I got to bury my father. Let me do that, and then I want to follow you. Oh, you know what? Actually, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Oh, that, you're, you're, like, I can't bury him? No. There's no time for that. The kingdom's at hand. That's the, that's the way he's calling us to. And, and turning back over here, do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's the message of the kingdom. That's Our king is, is calling us to that. He who loves me will keep my commandments. John chapter 15. The branch, uh, the, the vine and the branch, 
illustration. It's so powerful. And I think we miss it sometimes. It's, it's, it's not only powerful, it's beautiful to, to think about, like, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, and, and Jesus doesn't want us to do it on our own. Come and learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. Like, he doesn't want us to just be doing it on our own. He wants to be in the trenches, in the trenches right there with us. He's not just a king that stands and gives all these commands and expectations and he's got his finger and he's just waiting, waiting, waiting. He's like, I know he's going to mess up and when he does, I'm going to be right on him. Like That's not who God is. That's not who Jesus is. And, and many times our perception of who God is is informed by these, these concepts that he's just he's waiting for me to mess up and if, if I do, then he's done with me. And we have these verses that we try to back up that concept with about God visiting the sin of the children of the fathers on the third and the fourth generations. Whoa, whoa, keep, keep reading. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy to thousands of generations. We were talking uh, just the, the other day. I mean, I think if, we, if I were to come up here and put $4 on the table versus thousands of dollars, I think we would know the difference, right? I think we know which one we, we'd probably go towards. God's, God's on our side. That's why he sent his son. It's not because, it's not because he, he hated the world that he sent his son. He's like, wow, that thing is just a mess. That's a mess. And oh, man, my anger is so, I, just, I can't even stand it. And he's like, all right, get down there and straighten those people out. That's not what the Bible says, right? God so loved the world that he gave. And Jesus took the commission, emptied himself, came and said, I'll, I'll show them what, what humanity is supposed to do. I'll show them the way, Father. I'll be the light. And he assumes the role, and he steps in, and he's beaten, and he's mocked, and he's spat upon, despised, rejected. And all he's trying to do is show us how to get back to the Father. He's trying to show us this is not what God intended. The accusers want to grab the rocks and say, here it is, the behavior's off, let's stone and kill him. Let's get rid of this bad in the world. And Jesus is like, that's not going to solve the issue. We have to get to the heart. When we think about the reality of the kingdom of God, I know we've mentioned this several times that the Lord's Prayer is, it's hold the Lord's Prayer central. I know that we can't, it's, it's not a very long prayer. You know, it's not, all these great, fancy, wonderful words and drawn out on and on and on. It's, it's simple. Like, Jesus likes to kind of, I, maybe I just, because I like to distill things down. Like, he, to me, he distills things down into a very simple and attainable place where we can take those things. Now, once again, there, it's, it's the iceberg, right? Like, it may seem simple on the surface. And you go, oh, yeah, I get that. And you, you go and you grab it and you're like, oh, wow, this is... Much deeper and much bigger than I expected, Jesus. Uh, love your enemies? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, oh, you mean in this actual situation that I'm facing right here? Oh, I don't know about that one, right? Um, 
right? I mean, it, it becomes much harder when we actually begin to try to live this out in our life. And we don't always do it perfectly. And that's, that should show us our need and our dependency upon Him and His Spirit and the work in our hearts and life. And that's why we have the blessing of confession and repentance to be able to make things right when we, when we uh, contribute to something that's wrong. But... Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Like, those shouldn't be lost words on us. The early church prayed this multiple times a day. And, they, and when they would pray this prayer, they believed that God was doing something somewhere in the world, even if it wasn't right in front of them in that, at that moment. They just knew that, hey, you know what? The Lord said this is what we should pray, and that we're, when we're praying this, it may not be for me. It may not be for my brother right here. But who knows? Maybe on this part of the world, God is doing something. And, and when I'm praying that the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, God's moving and doing something over here. And that should be our mindset when we pray that. That it shouldn't just be lost. Because that's the goal, is that we're going, we're going back to the garden, right? We're going from creation to new creation. And, and in, in God's created order, heaven and earth... We're overlapping. God and humanity, where, where was God in the garden? It said that he walked in the garden, right? Spoke to them in the garden. And that's what we're going back to. Think about, you know, as they, they become separated because of sin and rebellion and all the consequences involved in that. And Jesus comes, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's bringing it in, he's bringing it in. And he, he, he gets it to where they begin to overlap. And he's saying, all right, I've given you what you need. Now you do it. I've got the nation. I've started the nation. And now it's your all's role and opportunity and privilege to continue the work of overlapping these things. It's a call to participate. Turn to John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Gardens are significant places in the Bible. Verse 2, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with their lanterns, their torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all, all the things that would come upon him, went forward and said to, to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. 
Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he said, excuse me, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, if you were to think about, like, if you were there in the garden and this was happening, like, what would, what would you do? Like, would you be like Peter? Like, all right, here we go. You know, this is it. You know, all these things that Jesus, I've already said Jesus is the Christ. I've already said he's God's anointed king. Like, he's the Messiah, and it's time. Like, here it is. It's time, like the Maccabeans, time to revolt. Let's get our swords. You know, in that moment, I don't, I, I'm assuming Peter probably wasn't thinking back to the Sermon on the Mount at that moment. Like, oh, yeah. Remember, like, it, it wasn't replaying in his head. Jesus went on the mountain. He sat down. Uh, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to them who do evil to you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Like that, I, may, maybe it is, but I doubt that that's not running through his head at that moment, right? It's interesting. I don't know if you guys do that, but like try to, when you read scripture, try to place yourself in the story. Try to think like, what would I have done? Would I have been like Peter? Would I have ran away? Would I have been scared? Would I have held on to Jesus? Would I want, like, what would I have done? And, and I, I think it's important to do that in a lot of ways just because we find ourselves, we may not find ourselves in the garden with Jesus about to be betrayed, but we find ourselves in our complex human relationships in very similar places and times and situations where in a split moment, are we going to be non-resistant? Are we going to love our enemies? Are we going to be able to put the things that Jesus said into practice in the moment? It's easy to do when we're, when we're removed away from the world. That's not what, you know, don't be, do not love the world or things in the world doesn't mean that we retreat away from the world and create some sort of enclave where we don't ever have to actually be confronted with the things in our heart and the things that are in the world. Like, we're supposed to be peacemakers. Peacemakers are those who actually press into conflict. The whole role and goal of peacemaking is that there's some sort of war and conflict happening, and my role is to step into that and be a peacemaker. That's how we begin to put Jesus' teachings in, into practice. And so Peter here obviously is not thinking about peacemaking, at least on, uh, in, in the terms that, that Jesus is. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, oh, sorry, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to, to uh, Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of, of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and, and so did uh, another disciple. Now, the, now that the disciple was, excuse me, now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard and the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple 
who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of, the, of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly the word. I always taught in synagogues and in temples where the Jews always meet. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself there. They said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go in to the Praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. How interesting of that. They are, they're in the midst of this secret capture of Jesus, treating him this way, and, you know, but they're not going to step into the Praetorium unless they defile themselves somehow. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the Praetorium, again called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Let's look at Jesus' answer here. He says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. This is the claim Jesus is making. He says, I have a kingdom. It's not from here. It's not, Pilate, it's not in any way, shape, or form of what you're thinking about. If it were, then, then I, my servants would, would come and fight. But Jesus is making the claim that his kingdom is a reality, right? Standing in front of Pilate. Like, if it wasn't, if it wasn't a reality, I don't think Jesus would stand face-to-face -face with Pilate and make a bold claim about his kingdom and its reality, and where it's from. 
and also where it's not from. Verse 37 seems like Pilate must be trying to internally wrestle with what he's hearing. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. Jesus was born to be a king. It's the center of the good news. It's, that's the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus is king. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who, who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? I wonder in what sense Pilate asked that, you know? Like, what is truth? Like, was he at this point where he's just like, you know, truth isn't relative. There's, there's no way to know. Was he sincere in his asking? I don't know. But just imagine the scene. It seems like even Jesus is trying to, to give an opportunity for Pilate to, to recognize. Right? Like everyone who hears my voice hears the truth. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have your custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to, to release to you the king of the Jews? Then all cried out uh, again, saying, Not that man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So we're going to... Let's continue into 19 there. So then Pilate took Jesus, scourged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put, it on, uh, they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in the man. The Jews answered him, We have a law according to our law, uh, he ought to die, because he made himself son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard the saying, he was, more, he was uh, the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless... It had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Are we? This, guys, this is the center. Jesus' kingship. This is why he's being crucified. Like, they're even using it against him. Like, look, Pilate, you're not a friend of Caesar. This guy has claimed to be a king. 
And if you don't crucify him, you're now an enemy of Caesar. You can't have Caesar and, and Jesus. If Jesus is our king, he's the only king. And the story goes on, and we know what happens. We crucify him. Three days later, he rises from the grave, right? All, all the claims of Jesus' ministry and his suffering and his death are all brought together in the resurrection. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he opens the way for all of us to be recipients. So if Jesus is a real king with a present kingdom, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? What did it mean for his followers? Whatever it meant for his followers then, it's the same call for us now. If you remember yesterday, I mentioned about the ability for a king to also be a savior, right? And the only way for someone to be a savior is that they have to have some sort of authority to actually pardon, right? And so Jesus, being the savior of the world, is wrapped up in, intertwisted, you can't, you can't get it from out, it's bound to his kingship. But if we neglect that, if we neglect to let people know that Jesus is king, and that this actually has not just application, ramifications for their life. You know, are they on the side that's standing and saying, crucify him, crucify him? Or are they those who are weeping and then later excited because of the resurrection? You know, when, when they come to the tomb, when the woman comes to the tomb and sees that, that he's not there and has that exchange, Where's, where is he at? You know, they've taken his body. And then later, the gardener approaches her. And she doesn't know it yet until he says, Mary. And immediately, her eyes were opened and she knew it was Jesus. The disciples who were walking down the road to Emmaus, another interesting story in there, if you study your geography, the road to Emmaus is going to the way where the um, Maccabean revolt started. So maybe they're thinking, hey, this kingdom, all right, I don't know, Jesus just was crucified, this guy that we've been trusting, we've been following, and all of a sudden he's been crucified, and now his body's missing, and I don't know what's going on, and so maybe they're, maybe they're going that way thinking, okay, maybe the Messiah is going to come back and this is now we're going to overthrow Rome. Who knows what they were thinking. But Jesus comes alongside of them. They don't even know. And they're having a conversation and it's not until later that they sit down and they break bread. They, they have a meal but their eyes are opened and then he's gone. And then he appears to the apostles and the rest and that's when he 
that's when he begins over this period of 40 days. And if you remember, we had, I think it was Brother Nate who, who read that when we did that survey of, of the, uh, the book of Acts, right? And it says, for a period of 40 days, he appeared to them and he taught them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Man, he comes in, starts his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's standing before Pilate. My kingdom is not from here. Yes, you say rightly that I'm a king. I was born to be a king and it's for this cause that I've come into this world and that is the truth that I am proclaiming here and now. And now he's died, he's been buried, and he's resurrected, and he's with his disciples. Guys, let me tell you about the kingdom. It's central to Jesus' message. It's central to who Jesus is, and we can't neglect that. It's a real and present kingdom that we are a part of, if we're his followers. And not only does he tell them about that, but then he goes and he commissions them, and he says... Let's all read this together. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This was his departing message. You know, like when you, when you know your time is limited with someone, you know, if, if, if any of you have ever had a relative or someone who was passing away, maybe from cancer or something, you know, and they, as, as that time is drawing near, they're, they're always going to give you the most important information, right? It's not the time for, for casual conversations. No, that's the time for meaningful conversations, right? I want to tell you this because the time is short. My time is ending, and, and I know that I have just but, but a blink of time with you. And there's a few more things about my Father's kingdom that, that you need to understand because I'm going away, but I'm leaving you here. And you're going to continue the mission forward. I've, I've started the process of overlapping heaven and earth. And now you have the job to carry it forward. Go and make disciples. That's Jesus' call to them, and it's Jesus' call to us. Are we going to be faithful? It's a matter of obedience. It should cause us hesitate it should cause us to think a little bit if we're whatever place we find ourselves whether church or community or whatever it is that if if we're not actively a part of making disciples we're being disobedient because this is how Jesus wants to make the world right Peter talks about hastening the coming of the Lord but He does that in and through and with us. I want to reflect on on one thing here. And here we are running short on time again. (laughs) The judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat 
of Jesus the King. It is a real thing. We need to understand that, that we will stand before the judgment seat one day. In John chapter 12, if you'd like to flip over there, you can. John chapter 12, verses 29, or starting in verse 29, it says, Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that, um, that it thundered. Others said an angel uh, had spoken to him. Jesus answered, starting in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, The voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Okay, so Jesus is saying right there, now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up, so now at this, this point he hadn't gone to the cross, so now he's, he's focusing on the, the judgment of the ruler of this world and this world being, being judged. And now he's um, prophesying about the death that he's going to undertake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world has been cast out. And if I am to be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now jump over to verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus here says that he has a command, and that command is eternal life. That's the appeal that he's making. I have come to put things right, and I want you to be a part of that. But if you reject that, the words I've spoken, that's what you're going to be judged on. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. I came to bear light. But those words that I speak, they will judge you in the end. So judgment is a sure thing. And Jesus came as the light and appeals to eternal life. Second Corinthians. Turn over there real quick. And we'll wrap up here shortly. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's hear from the apostle here and try to get into his mind and heart and how he views Jesus. Let me start in verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of God's anointed king. Yours probably says Christ's gospel in there, but remember, we have to give some definition to Christ, right? So what gospel is he teaching? 
the gospel of Jesus, God's anointed king. And a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in King Jesus. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to others the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God but as, but as of sincerity but as from God we speak in the sight of God in his anointed king. So did you catch that? Like that part there in verse um, 15, or sorry, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us, what does he do? He diffuses. What, is, what, is, what does it mean to diffuse something? Spread it everywhere. Spreads it out. Yeah, spreads it everywhere, right? It's like you take something an oil or something, uh, a scent, and, and, and you condense it down, and you can just take a few drops, right? It doesn't take much. And all of a sudden, it can, it can permeate the air, and like you can smell it when you walk in, right? And, and that's the picture that Paul's giving of us. Like God, through us, diffuses that. And it's interesting, he says that uh, it can be a little bit confusing because it says that to those um, who are who are saved? It is the aroma of life leading to life, right? But to those who are perishing, it's the aroma of death leading to death. And it's kind of confusing. Like, wait a second, how can something smell good and bad at the same time? Like that 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 analogy. Where where is he going with that? Well, there's interesting. If you look at uh, if you research the Roman triumph, what would happen in the ancient Roman world is you would have uh, if you had a commander who successfully led a battle. And he, many times there would be prisoners of war, there would be you know, all the, the, um, the goods that they have taken as a result of, of winning. And so they would actually set up this parade and people would be in the streets and the, the generals would put on clothes. They did, typically didn't, weren't armed during this procession because it was a celebration. And what would happen is they would parade the commander and his army that he successfully led and behind them would be the, the things that they had taken from whatever kingdom, but then also the prisoners. And so during that time, there would be incense. They would, because they, what they're doing is they're then going to offer to the God of Jupiter. They're going to go burn incense and, and offer their sacrifices and give them a portion of what was taken. And so for the people in the city that may be related to the commander or the people who are a part of that Roman piece of the Roman Empire, to them, this is excitement, right? Like, oh, all of these sounds, this is the sounds, the smells, everything. This is the, this is the smell of triumph and victory. How about for the prisoners? It's not a different aroma. It's the same one. They're all, everybody's smelling the same thing. But to them, they, they, the picture is, uh-oh, we know what this means. Oh, we're going, oh, they're offering sacrifices. That's us. We're the ones that are going to perish here. So to one group of people, it's the smell of victory in life. And to others, it's the, it's the smell of death leading to death. 
it's it's an amazing picture if you actually think about it in those terms like you understand oh Paul's drawing on something that people are truly going to understand so it's victory we have victory with God's anointed king we can triumph when Jesus is our king okay turn over uh, to chapter 5 same book 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 for we know that if our earthly house, excuse me, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tent. Uh, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us uh, for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of King Jesus, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Behaviors, but no change internally, right? They boast in appearance, but not in heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are... If we are sound of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ, the love of King Jesus compels us because we judge thus. Before we go there, the love of King Jesus compels us. Like, does it compel you? It's an honest question. It's one I think we all should, should wrestle with frequently. I don't think it's, it's not a one and done, a settled thing. Yep, it does. And then we move on. Like, I think it's, we've got to constantly die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus daily. And does his love and does your love for him compel you to do something? For Peter, it compelled him to, which made no logical sense, right? And what what world in your right mind do you step out of a boat onto water and actually walk? Not in this physical world, right? It doesn't make sense logically. But his love for Christ and who he is and knowing what he knows compels him to take a step out of the boat and onto the water. Does the love of Christ compel you in that way? That if one died for all, then all died. And, if, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus wants your life. What's our definition of a, a disciple? Someone who opens and allows Christ um, access to his whole self, right? 
Therefore, verse 16, therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known King Jesus according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in King Jesus, he is a new creation. All old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus, our King. Well, that's, that's beautiful, right? We've been reconciled. We've been, we've been saved. Does he stop there? What's it say next? So we've been reconciled and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been saved for something. We've been redeemed to produce, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue, to have dominion. We've been, we've been made right so that we can help others be made right and follow the way of life and peace because we're following the Messiah. Follow me as I follow Christ. That should be our goal, each and every one of us, to tell people to follow me as I follow Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. 19, that is that God was in King Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors. What does it mean to be an ambassador? Think about like in a, in a political sense and, and, you know, and what we know in, in the world here. If somebody is an ambassador from Ethiopia, living in America, what does that mean? They represent their country. They represent, right? It's not just a, a really patriotic citizen from a country that has, I mean, I'm sure they are patriotic, but uh, it's, it's not just merely somebody who's proud of being Ethiopian, right? The ambassador there has to represent their country, their interests, and, and be able, anytime that conversations are going on, okay, this is great, but they're not, they don't think about themselves. They're not thinking about their interests. They have a bigger interest in mind. How is this going to affect my people and my country? You know, because of human greediness, well, hey, don't worry about that. Let's work out a deal between you and me. We can work out something, and I can, I can have your interest in mind. But an ambassador says, no, 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 no. I'm not concerned about my interest. I'm concerned about the interest of my king and his kingdom. That's what we're called to, to be representatives, just like they were in the garden. They were supposed to represent, to be image bearers in the garden. So now then, we are ambassadors for King Jesus as though God were pleading through us. He's pleading through us. Jesus starts the work, and then he leaves us to carry on the mission. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I have one goal for each of you. What are we in? We're in August? Yeah. Kind of like Brother Finney mentioned in this morning in that analogy of the, the guy who did one push-up, right? 
let's make a goal. And if we exceed it, praise God. But let's set the goal. My hope is that each of you will set a goal to at least make one disciple before this year ends. At least one. If you want to set that bar higher, that's fine. Make one disciple. See people, love people, invest in people, show Jesus to people. If you've been reconciled, you have a duty, a responsibility. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's all kinds of problems in the world. Addiction, broken relationships, dysfunction, sin, sadness, sickness, disease, on and on and on and on. And you've been made right so that you can help make others right. To bring them to that source. We're over time. <laughs> Apologize. But maybe we can, uh, I, I haven't seen Clay pop his head in, so uh, if everybody's okay with it, maybe we'll spend like five minutes um, on uh, question and answer time. Let me, let me pray, and then we'll go to some questions or comments. Gracious, mighty, and holy Father, Lord, we are blown away at your love. You... You love us, and, and, and even when we think we can grasp it, we, we've barely scratched the surface of the love that you have for us and for all of humanity and for all of creation. And Father, we just want to pray that, that we can step in and know that love. God, I pray that you would help us to love you and to love others. Help us to know you and to make you known to others. Father, I pray for each and every one of these students here in this class, for all of us, that we can make disciple-making a priority in our life. Your departing words that you gave through your son, Jesus, were to go forth and make disciples of all nations, that all authority had been given to him from you in heaven and on earth, and you told us to therefore go as a result of that, to go and to make disciples. Help us to obey. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us discernment for the calling. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.